I'm Tom Power, and this is Toy Heart, a podcast about bluegrass. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for streaming or downloading, and thank you for all your nice comments on the Jesse McReynolds interview a couple of weeks ago. But I realized uh, I did something that I I told myself I wouldn't do, which is sort of bury the lead. Uh, I said at the beginning of the podcast last weekend that there's this there's this video of Jesse McReynolds literally watching his tradition be passed on. Uh, at the beginning of the interview, and then I sort of did the payoff at the end of the podcast, where I said that here, here's where you can find it. But I had this realization the other day that, I mean, no offense to you if you do, but I don't think I've listened to the last couple of minutes of a podcast in a very, very long time. So just in case you missed it, I wanted to let you know if you go to our, our Instagram at Toy Heart Podcast, you'll see this video of uh, a great mandolin player named Tristan Scroggins. And he came along with me. He's a good friend of mine. And he helped me a lot with the research for this podcast. He came along with me to the Jesse McReynolds interview. He plays Jesse McReynolds style mandolin and he played it for Jesse. And then he hands the mandolin back to Jesse and Jesse plays for Tristan. So if you missed that, uh, head to our Instagram at Toy Heart Podcast. You should be able to find it there. And I promise I won't I won't save any exciting things for the end of the podcast ever again. I, I promise. So today on the show, I'm excited about this. It is our second last episode of the season, or as I've been encouraged to say, our second to last episode of the season, I guess, depending on what side of the border you're on. This is new to me. Uh, but this is exciting. Tony Trishka. Tony Trishka, not just a great banjo player, but also a very important banjo player. I think everyone who plays, as we call it in this interview, bluegrass adjacent music, which is bluegrass music that incorporates jazz or uh, bluegrass music that incorporates rock and roll or bluegrass music that incorporates, you know, experimental music or, you know, world music, as they once unfortunately called it, uh, owes Tony Trishka a debt of gratitude. And I don't know if he gets the props the same way that David Grisman does or Sam Bush does for really expanding the parameters of what bluegrass music can be. So this conversation um, is one we recorded at Bela Flex House. Uh, Tony was visiting Bela in Nashville. He was also there to play the Grand Ole Opry. Uh, Bela was Tony's student, as you might have heard in the Bela Fleck episode. If you missed that, it's available wherever you got this. And we started out by talking about something our dads had in common. Hope you dig this. My conversation with Tony Trishka. <laughs> It is nice to talk to you. I've never, uh, I've never met. I've been, I've been. We've never had the pleasure. Long. Nice to talk to you, Tom. I've been a big, I've been a big fan of yours for a really long time. I learned a bunch of your tunes in weird tunings when oh, I was a geez, young banjo I'm player. So sorry to hear that. Yeah. Um, I mean, I found out uh, that we ended up having something in common. My dad was a union leader in Newfoundland. My dad started. Um, well, he was secretary treasurer, but he helped start uh, a large public sector union in Newfoundland. I was kind of growing up around leftist politics. Oh. And I found out that you were too. Your dad loved the almanacs, right? Oh, yeah. We're gonna roll, we're gonna roll, we're gonna roll the union on. We're gonna roll, we're gonna roll, we're gonna roll the union on. He was, he was a communist. I guess I can say that. It's only broadcast in Canada. No one will hear it down here, will they? Oh, they will. Oh, they're well, gonna come it's too late you. now. But McCarthy's dead, Tony. Oh, that's right. That was a long time ago. <laughs> no, uh, he was. Uh, I found, he never told me this. He intimated it. But uh, talking to uh, some friends of mine from when I was growing up, this. Oh, yeah. The FBI approached my parents. I, I know three separate neighbors who were approached by the FBI about my parents because my dad was at Los Alamos just before they dropped the bomb, and he. You know, he didn't develop it, but he arrived like the day before they dropped it on Hiroshima and and became a total peace 
Peacenik, I don't know how else to say it, from then on. And there were pictures of him in Life magazine in 1945, uh, pigeonholing senators to say, hey, we got to put the genie back in the bottle. This is really bad stuff. Oh, my God. So he was very, very left-wing. And uh, again, my sister and I were shielded from all this during the 50s growing up. But uh, yeah, it was, it was pretty intense. I found out years later. You had no idea? No, I didn't know. He was, I didn't know, you know, that the FBI was hovering. And uh, at the time, I didn't know he had been at Los Alamos. So it was, uh, yeah. But he was in the midst of all that stuff. Were you, well, what did he do for a living? He was a physics professor, right? At, so at Syracuse would, University. That's why he so been there, yeah. So he he knew, he knew the real danger. You he know? knew the real deal. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's why he was at Los Alamos to, was to continue working. And I don't know. I'm sure he'd probably left right after when, when he found out what was really going on. But uh, he was at the Peak Skill concert with Paul Robeson that Pete Seeger was at. And, you know, so all that stuff. Did that side of things bleed into you, the, the folk music side of things? Yeah, well, again, I grew up listening to Talking Union. So, you know, when I was like eight, I'm saying, oh, you can't scare me. I'm sticking to the union and, yeah. you know, things like that. Oh, you can't scare me. I'm sticking to the union. I'm sticking to the union. I'm sticking to the union. Remember when you found out that was a fiddle tune? Uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and and it's in uh, The Wizard of Oz as she's going down just before the tornado hits. Oh, in the really? background, yeah, Red Wing is playing in the background. But anyway, yeah, so, uh, and then the Weavers and Pete Seeger, and my mother went to school with Toshi Seeger, the woman who would become Toshi Seeger, the Little Red Schoolhouse, which is another left-wing yeah. kind of place in uh, Greenwich Village. So even though you didn't know the FBI were looking at, at you, you were sort of raised in a, did was, you, were you aware that you were raised in sort of a lefty, progressive household? Uh, n- I don't think so at the time. It was just, this is, what I, this is what I knew. This is what I grew up in. Right. And they didn't, you know, we didn't have hammers and sickles on the wall or anything, <laughs> and uh, you know, looking back on it, I'm very proud that, uh, you know, you know, I mean, my father was a communist, like Pete Seeger was a communist, and Woody Guthrie was a communist, although apparently he was never a card-carrying member. Yeah. And I don't know if my father was a card-carrying member, but it was just uh, some old family friend told me that. So it's just interesting, interesting how uh, I grew up like that without really knowing what it was all about. The MTA was the, was the moment? Yeah. The Kings and Trio song? Yeah. Uh, he never it, returned? He never returned. The very first record album I ever bought, and it was Kingston Trio at large, it was Kingston Trio, and their banjo player, Dave Gard, took this banjo solo on there and it was 16 notes out of that banjo solo that made me play the banjo. I was already playing folk guitar and then I heard that and went, whoa, I gotta do this. this was the folk guitar thing just part of the whole folk boom? You just wanted to play an instrument? Yeah, I, I well, I started with flute and then piano classical lessons, and then the, yeah, the folk scare of the early '60s was well underway, and I wanted to play the guitar. I can't remember what made me play the guitar actually. I never thought about that, but anyway, I, I got into folk music, and 
uh, was very fortunate because my very first banjo teacher, who didn't teach me that much, but um, I went with him to the Newport Folk Festival in 1963 when I was 14, and he was looking after me. And uh, I got to see Mississippi John Hurt and Doc Boggs and Sonny Terry Brown. I mean, he, Bill Monroe was there. Uh, Clarence Ashley, Doc Watson was when wow. Doc Watson first came out and did his thing. And then it was Dylan and Phil Oaks and Tom Paxton and all the protest world was there also. And Joan Baez. So it was like, whoa, I have this whole world opening to me, you know, getting to see these people firsthand. It was really what, amazing. What do, you, what do you remember from that? Like what sticks out in your mind when you think, what image sticks out in your mind when you think? It's funny, that? one of the main images that sticks out in my mind is seeing Doc Boggs, and I didn't get him at the time. I mean, he's my big hero today, but uh, he was dressed in a you know, suit and tie, and uh, I thought he was going to have a heart attack. It was like 90 degrees. He's all dressed up like that. And I don't even remember him playing the banjo. In my memory is saying, House Carpenter, so unaccompanied ballad. I'm not sure if that's true, but I know it was Doc Boggs. And his face was turning red, and you know, and he was an older gentleman at that point. Mm-hmm. But that was—he had just been rediscovered by Mike Seeger at that point. So that sticks out in my mind. I remember seeing Dylan doing workshops in '63. Young Dylan. Yeah, he, I mean, that's when he was really presented to the world. And my um, my first banjo teacher, who was trying to teach me claw hammer, but didn't do a very good job of it. He was a folk singer. He was a guitar player. And anyway. I went to my first lesson with him, and there's a record album in the corner of his apartment. And it's, it's Bob Dylan. It was Bob's first album, and on the back it said, <laughs> "I thought it was Dylan. What did I know?" Yeah. And it said, "To John from Bob" or something like that. So he knew him from the village. So when Dylan came, and I always tell the story, but when Dylan came to Syracuse uh, to play, um, we we got to go back. I went with my teacher, and so I got to go backstage. And meet Dylan, and he had, you know, this was like at the height of the times they were changing and blowing in the wind and all that. And he had really long fingernails and a very weak handshake. Mm-hmm. And then we were invited <laughs> over to his hotel room across the street afterwards. And uh, Dylan came over to me and said, uh, would you like something to drink? And I said, I'll have a Coke. And he went down the hall and bought me a Coca-Cola. So wow. that was pretty cool. Wow. I'm 14 years old. I mean, how did this happen? That's unbelievable. Yeah, and I've had all sorts of great experiences just being in the right place at the right time, synchronicity, all that sort of thing. So, so, but when does the transition come from sort of that, I'll say like more nebulous kind of folk banjo thing to three-finger Scruggs-style banjo, bluegrass banjo? For me, how did that yeah. happen? Yeah, uh, Well, so I, I heard that solo, and then I said, oh, where can I hear more of this? And I think someone said, well, find something... They might have mentioned Flat and Scruggs, I'm not sure, but I think, I kind of remember my very first Bluegrass album was uh, Banjo Scrug Style or something like that. It was a Folkways album, I think. Uh, and then I got Folk Banjo Styles, which had Eric Weisberg and uh, uh, Tom Paley was on there, but Eric Weisberg and Marshall Brickman. And that's really when I started getting excited because uh, Eric Weisberg played Lonesome Road Blues on there. And just straight Scrug style. I was like, oh, yeah, I love this. And then I got uh, Flat and Scruggs, Folk Songs of Our Land. I mean, it was all this folk, you know, Bluegrass was trying to catch in on the folk thing. And uh, But anyway, so those three albums, pr- primarily hearing Eric Weisberg and then, of course, Earl Scruggs. And I was like, oh, okay. And then from that, I worked my way to Bill Monroe and then Stanley's and on from there. So were you were you one of these people who was putting in the eight hours, you know, just couldn't stop playing the banjo? Like there's that great story about J.D. Crow would play it in the morning until the bus came pick him up for school and then he'd come back home and he'd play the banjo again until he went to bed at night. Yeah, I was I was pretty much that. Yeah. Yeah. I was pretty obsessed. I don't have 
particular memories, but I know it was like that. It's just, you know, I'd be sitting at my desk at school and, you know, playing Foggy Mountain Breakdown on the desktop, <laughs> you know, that sort of thing. I, I still do it. I just did it the other day. We're driving, I'm driving with my, with my wife, and uh, I was uh, playing through some of Bela's Big Country, and I was in the car with my wife, and she's driving, and I'm like, okay, what are you playing? Mm-hmm. It's Big Country. Okay, so I still do it to this day. So, so who were the Down City Ramblers? Wow. Down City Ramblers. It was just a local band. Uh, there was a radio show where they'd talk about, we're coming to you from up country and down city, or something like that. And so we took the name Down City Ramblers. Uh, that was in Syracuse, New York. Already kind of funny, man. There's already some humor in there. I know? guess. Yeah, yeah, I guess. Yeah. Like probably, an irreverence in there, right? Yeah. And this is probably 65-ish when we started, and we had a washed-up bass player that my dad made the washed-up bass. And I, I don't think you would have heard, you would not have heard of anyone in the band except... Um, uh, our guitar player slash mandolin player, depending, was a guy named Harry Gilmore, uh, who changed his name to Lou Martin and put out an album, one album on on Rounder, and he was on the very first Country Cooking album, right. which was the first album that I was on playing yeah. mandolin on there. Uh, and we had a guy named Joel Diamond in our band who really wanted to play with Bill Monroe, and he was hoping to be the next guitar player after Pete Rowan, and actually auditioned for Monroe and actually got the job. But he was going to college and would have been drafted if he'd left school. So he stayed in school and wow. ended up not playing with Bill Monroe. But, um, and we were together for five or six years, mostly playing just locally. But uh, I cut my teeth doing that. We played a Captain Max Clam Shack. And one of my scariest moments on stage is I'm playing and I hear this explosion coming from my banjo. And someone had thrown a clamshell that hit the bridge and went, bam! Oh, man. I'm still recovering from it to this day, yes. <laughs> were the, were the Greenbrier, Greenbrier boys part of your life then? Because I was just thinking about New York bluegrass. There wasn't that much, right? But there was, you know, Rinsler and, and, yeah. and, and Frank Wayfield was in, was in the yeah. band for a while, John Harold. Sure. Like, were, they, did you, were you aware of that oh, village bluegrass way thing? aware, totally aware. Yeah. I, we were way into the Greenies, we called them, right. <laughs> the Greenbrier boys. No, major into the Greenbrier boys. We need a good old case of salvation to keep the love of God in our we need a whole lot more of Jesus and a lot less rock and roll. And they came to Syracuse. We had like this quadruple A f- football team, you know, very low level. And they played in our baseball stadium. And uh, they had a hoot nanny in between the halves, you know. And I think there were like 30 people in the crowd, 15 to watch the game and 15 to see the Greenbrier boys. And that was it. And then I remember we went to a party afterwards, and I got to meet them. It was really exciting. So great band. Yeah, great band. Yeah, they were Bob Yellen, uh, wonderful, wonderful, very progressive banjo player for his time. Yeah, I have that Vanguard compilation where it has like a bunch of their tunes, and then the Joan Baez tunes and stuff like that. Yeah, it's really great. It's great. They were a wonderful band. Yeah. Um, So uh, I heard the story because I was getting ready for this interview this morning, and I was listening to WSM, We Shield Millions. And I, yes, I, and also <laughs> William Smith Monroe. Yeah, I saw. I, I was reading about Bill last night, and I saw WSM mentioned a bunch of times in the banjo hangout forums. Um, you have dinner with Bill Monroe. Can yeah. you tell me this story? Yeah, we were at the. Um, was this the, around the Down City time? Yeah, it was Down City Rambler time. It was 1966, and we'd gone to the second. We'd all gone to the first Bluegrass Festival in Fincastle, Virginia, the first three-day Bluegrass Festival put on by Carlton Haney in '65, Labor Day weekend. You went to the first Bluegrass Festival. Yeah, yeah. What was it like? It was amazing. It was another, you know, I'd seen Bill Monroe in 63. I don't remember him talking. He had Bill Keith in the band at that point at Newport. Uh, But the first words I remember him saying was at that festival in 65 at Fincastle. We'd driven 
whatever, eight hours down to southwest Virginia or wherever that was exactly. And we arrive, and the next morning you wake up, and I go to the snack bar, and who's walking over the hill but Bill Monroe? And he goes up and says, I'll have a Coca-Cola. <laughs> Never forget it to this day. And but were uh, you blown away by Keith? Because I, I, when I think of you, I think about, of course, because of that record that meant a lot to me, I think about you and Bailey and Keith. Oh, Bill Keith was my big, big hero. I wrote him a couple of letters and I sent him uh, a tape of some tunes that I'd written. And in 1966, friend, uh, our guitar player in our band and I went down to New York City and went to, went to the Gaslight to see uh, Bill Monroe play for two nights. But before that, we went to the Folklore Center and uh, we grabbed a couple of instruments on the wall, off the wall, and were jamming. And my back is to the door and my friend looks uh, to the door and Bill Keith had just walked in with Pete Rowan. And uh, and I went nervously over to Bill Keith, who was hanging out with Pete Rowan, and said, uh, I don't remember if you remember me. I distinctly remember saying that. And uh, and he was he sat down with me for an hour and showed me banjo stuff. Wow. And he was with he was hanging with Pete Rowan. Why yeah. would he do that? You yeah. Know? And he did. He spent an hour with me showing me stuff. And I went back to high school. You know, I, my parents let me cut, cut a couple of days of high school, and I got back at lunchtime or something and said, I just met Bill Keith and Bill Monroe, I, and, and saw Bill Monroe at the Gaslight. Yeah, the Beatles have a new song out. I mean, they meant nothing to them. It's Bill Keith. So how did Monroe end up at the dinner table? Okay, going back to that. So at the second Fincastle Festival, uh, and we all knew Pete Rowan from Syracuse because he'd played with some bands that were from there. In fact, he backed me up at a banjo contest in 1964 at Syracuse. But anyway, uh, our friend talked to uh, Pete and said, hey, you're playing in Rochester uh, which is right next to Syracuse uh, in October, and this was Labor Day weekend. Can you can you come for dinner to my parents' house? And he asked Peter asked Monroe, and Monroe said yes. So we sh- show up in the afternoon. There's the Bluegrass bus in front of our guitar player's parents' house. A star of the Grand Ole Opry, but I guess times weren't easy then, you know. Yeah, he he was still probably he was probably struggling, and yeah, free dinner, sure. Yeah. Wow. So we show up and we get in there and, and our whole band was there. It was the four of us and Joel's parents. And, and before dinner, uh, we got to play a couple of tunes with Monroe. You know, he said, you pick good boy, you sound like Bill or Brad, because he called him Brad Keith or something like that. And then uh, Monroe was drinking a glass of red wine and told the story about how he had a hound dog that could trace the scent of a rabbit through the streets of Chicago if the scent was three weeks old. Wow. You know? <laughs> and then afterwards, after dinner, he said, would you like to play for us? Yeah, that'd be nice. So we're just sitting on the on the living room couch, and there's Bill Monroe and the Bluegrass Boys in suits and ties taking requests for 20 minutes. No. Seriously. Really? Seriously. Uh, can you do Can't You Hear Me Calling? And they do it. Cross the Cumberlands, yeah, and whatever, Toy Heart, yeah, whatever, whatever, the, for 20 minutes. And then we got to ride in the Bluegrass bus over to the gig, and Lamar Greer was the banjo player, and he's driving along and realizes the main drag of Rochester, downtown Rochester, Oh, you're going there. You have to go in the opposite direction. Does a U-turn in the bluegrass bus in the middle of downtown Rochester, and he had baseball gloves up in the upper compartment of the of the bus because Bill Monroe had this baseball history. And then we saw the show, which was amazing. The show itself was amazing. But we got this. Uh, I'm as close to you 
right now across this table uh, as we were to Bill Monroe and the Bluegrass Boys taking requests. I'm trying to figure out the turn here, Tony, because everything you're telling me up to this point sounds like you're playing bluegrass banjo. I mean, there's Bill Keith, which is, you know, I, I mean, at this point, even Bill wasn't playing the Paganini stuff yet. You know, it was still fiddle tunes. When did the turn come that you wanted to start maybe pushing what the banjo could do? Because I can't really find too much of an example of it before you. Well, in 1965, at the first festival, first Fincastle Festival, I entered the banjo contest with this guy, Harry Gilmer, Lou Martin, who I mentioned. He played, backed me up on guitar. And the judges were Bill Emerson, Lamar Greer, Monroe's uh, banjo player at the time, and Ralph Stanley. And I played Nine Pound Hammer, and I threw some fake Middle Eastern modes into it. Why? I was like, I have no idea. I was out of my mind. And I, there's someone, someone took a picture of the judges as I was playing, and there's Ralph like with his, <laughs> like his hand on his forehead, like, oh my god, what the hell is this? Yeah, <laughs> what was going through his mind? Um, but anyway, I just had found those notes and, and liked them, and said, okay, I'm going to throw this in. Know thy judges, but uh, and so I, I, the guy who won played Foggy Mountain Breakdown straight ahead. So I can I can trace it certainly to that. And actually, when I got my long neck banjo, the first day I got it, the very first thing I played on it was I found the melody to uh, Beethoven's famous Ode to Joy. So, Have you, you given know. any thought to it? Have you given any thought to why? Because it seems to have come out of nowhere, the genre agnosticism of the banjo in you. Have uh, you given any thought to maybe where that might have come from or that kind of fearlessness might have come from to play anything on it? Because uh, it's such a codified instrument in so many ways. I mean, we can yeah. trace the history back of the instrument. No, it's not. But Earl Scruggs on. Right. I wasn't the first person to do it. I mean, Bill Keith was developing things and taking chances. Bobby Thompson in 64 yeah. was playing on the street where you live. Mm-hmm. Tico Tico. He was trying things. He never got it out there for people to hear. But um, but I grew up, you know, a child of the 60s. And I'm listening to the Beatles. And I'm, Strawberry Fields Forever is my favorite song of all time, period. And uh, Van Dyke Parks and, and Hendrix and on and on. Uh, and listening to a lot of Aaron Copeland. I'm a big Copeland fan. So I had all these other notes and sounds in my head. And it was a time when we're pushing the boundaries here, you know, in all levels. Long hair and music and everything. And that, I was caught up in that. So it was, I didn't, and I grew I was living in Syracuse, New York. So it wasn't like, oh, you can't do that. And I was around people who were like-minded, especially in the early 70s when I was with this group practice special. So we just tried stuff. I was I was hearing different things. I was hearing more chords than you might have in a three-chord bluegrass song or something. Yeah. I'm listening to some fairly. When I say sophisticated music, not the bluegrass isn't sophisticated because it is, of course, but just different. Zappa more chords and, and Zappa. And, all, yeah, I'm yeah. listening to all that stuff. Yeah. Uh, so I, I just had these other notes in my ears, and uh, and when I was playing the banjo, those things would just start coming out naturally. Um, well, one of the interesting things about doing these interviews with with bluegrass musicians and like bluegrass adjacent musicians, but yeah, bluegrass musicians, bluegrass adjacent, I like that. Yeah. <laughs> what kind of music do you play? Oh, bluegrass adjacent music. <laughs> That's really good. Thank you. You gave me a good catchword here. <laughs> it's really surprising to me because I I grew up in Newville. I'm feeling quite lonely playing this music, and sure. then you know when I met people who played it, I felt like I found my people. But I thought that was 
just for, you know, East Coasters in Canada. But almost everyone I've spoken to has had that moment. You know, Alison Brown told me she had it with Stuart Duncan. She was she felt kind of lonely, like no one was really doing this thing. Right. Maybe she found people who play bluegrass, but all of a sudden she found someone who got her and they got one another and they were 14. That was Stuart. Right. You know, uh, Ricky told me that story about him meeting Keith Whitley. You know, he said, mm-hmm. all my friends were listening to the Rolling Stones. Yeah. Here was this kid 30, my, 30 minutes away who loved who loved the Stanley Brothers. I feel like something happened when you went to New York. Like, I feel like when you went to New York and maybe met Andy Statman and these guys, was, right. was that kind of that moment that like, oh, there's a bunch of bluegrass heads here who are also kind of freaks? Yeah, I mean, I, w- I was lucky because I always had people to play with. You know, when I first had my banjo lessons, I was playing with my teacher, John Gaines, who, who, through whom I met Dylan, and I would travel with him. The first real gig I did was opening up for Jose Feliciano with my teacher in like 64. Four-ish, sixty, probably nineteen sixty-four, at this folk club, and I'd never been on a stage with lights before. And there's a very low stage, and I got lost in the lights and fell off the stage on my face. I think on my banjo. Yeah. And Jose Feliciano <laughs> was sitting in the audience, right there, and he's the one that was blind, and I fell off the stage. But anyway, uh, but anyway, so right off the bat, I was playing with this my teacher, and then I found these guys who were in college, and I was still in high school, but they had a band, and I joined their band, and. I always had people to play with, so I was really lucky that way. And then we started the Down City Ramblers. And we did some things that were a little bit, we did a bird song, yeah. uh, Hey Mr. Spaceman. And uh, you know, we did Amelia Earhart by uh, the Greenbrier Boys, or not by them, but Red River Dave, I guess, but they did it. And then uh, the second country cooking album, Andy Statman and Kenny Kosek came up because I met Pete Warnick and those folks from Country Cooking and joined their band. But anyway, so on the second album, with Andy joining the band and Kenny Kosek, suddenly hear these New York guys with a deep knowledge of bluegrass, but stretching it yeah. a lot. And uh, and so that's where really where it began. And I moved to New York City in 73 and joined Breakfast Special, which was that those guys and Stacy Phillips on Dobro. And uh, we were all like-minded, you know, oh, let's put some Hawaiian music in here. Let's have some Jewish music. Let's have some rock and roll. Let's have some Sam Cooke. And it was just whatever and we'd show up at these bluegrass festivals and you can you, know, you can hear the snap of the uh, lawn chairs snapping shot as they headed <laughs> to the campers the motorcycle gangs would hang out to listen to us it was that sort of thing it, it is funny because i read an interview with bela uh, not that long ago and someone said if you haven't have you received any pushback for making such progressive bluegrass and banjo music and he said uh, and I'll, I'll paraphrase him he said no because tony kind of took it all for me <laughs> he said that you know my, my teacher tony trishka was the person who received the pushback that you expect me to have? What what did that look like for you? It was it was sort of amusing in a way. It wasn't it wasn't like horrendous. Let's put it that way. And it wasn't like we'd show up at gigs and people would throw things at us. It was not, it wasn't like that. But you get some somewhat withering reviews in Bluegrass Unlimited or County Sales, which was this county. It was this newsletter from Virginia where you could order bluegrass records. You know, any bluegrass record you ever wanted. So I don't remember exact quotes. I wish I did. I've got them in the scrapbook somewhere. But you know, right. fairly scurrilous. But it didn't bother you too much. No, because I was in my world and I was making records and I was with a band and we were we were sort of our own island in a way, you know, and we just sort of would shrug it off. And so I, I, it didn't traumatize me. It didn't make me back down and, okay, I'll do traditional bluegrass from now on. Was there any, I mean, was there any desire in you to be a straight player? Like, did you want to play banjo for Monroe or anything? I did want to play for Monroe because, you know, in, in spite of my reputation as being, you know, this 
uh, bluegrass adjacent to musician. I'm going <laughs> to drive this into the ground. That's such a good phrase. <laughs> that's good. If, man, if that's the name of your new record, oh, bluegrass I'll adjacent. Be honored. Oh man, a little <laughs> asterisk and there's yeah, Tom's name. Uh, thank you for that. Uh, no, I did want to play for Monroe, and I, I auditioned for him. I mean, again, I'm doing all these crazier things, but then Bluegrass is still, and to this day, is still at the heart of it. When I pick up the banjo, I'll play Fireball Mail or something, and Earl is still my big hero, you know. Um, anyway, in 60, uh, sorry, 75, 76, I was coming back from California, driving back with a friend. We were doing a show out there, and uh, Bob Black was in the band playing banjo. Great and so, there. yeah. And uh, not that I was trying to get his job, but no one stays forever in the Bluegrass Boys. And he, he understood that. And I said, could you set up an interview for me? So I went uh, to the Opry on Friday night, Friday night Opry, and Bill was playing and uh, waiting for Bob to show up. And I'm just sitting at the guard gate there and seeing all these country music stars coming through with their girlfriends or boyfriends or husbands or wives. And then Monroe shows up in this beat-up old station wagon by himself. And everyone started having a quick chat with the, the guard, and he just kind of— just very perfunctory, just goes through. Uh, And so anyway, after the show, without going to all the details, uh, I go back, you know, get backstage, and I go into the dressing room, and there's Bill reading his fan mail. And uh, Bob said, this is uh, the banjo player I was telling you about. He'd like to audition. Okay, do you have a guitar man? I said, "Uh, no. Well, you can use mine, Monroe says. And uh, he's continuing to read his fan mail, and uh, I open up the banjo case and take out the banjo. And I was a news junkie at this point, and I had Time Magazine in there. It happened to be the week that Patty Hearst was arrested for being in the Symbionese Liberation Army, and she's giving the power salute on the cover. And I take out the banjo, and I look over at Monroe, and he's looking into the banjo case, seeing Patty Hearst <laughs> give the power salute. I'm not going to get this gig. That's <laughs> uh, not going to happen. So anyway, I played Molly and Ted Brooks in Bluegrass Breakdown, and he said, you pick good boy, but stick to the melody. I thought I was playing the melody. Anyway, I wrote my name on a scrap of paper with my phone number and never heard from him. And then um, I was playing with this other band. I was in Skyline in the 80s, and we played this uh, music fest at, uh, in Milwaukee. And uh, Monroe was there with Butch Robbins, and Butch said, you know, I'm leaving, the, I'm leaving the old man, and if you want the job, I think I can get you the job. And um, I was already in this band, and we'd been together for years, and we had a van and records, and it was just the momentum was there, so I didn't do it, and I wish I had. You do? Yeah, sure. You know, I mean, I, I don't think, from all the stories, I don't think it would have been the easiest route, but it would have been nice to, you know, to say and to have experienced playing with Bill Monroe. Right. Yeah. So can we can we talk a little bit about Bluegrass Light? Sure. I mean, I feel like that was a really transitional record, not just in, in the history of, of Bluegrass and Bluegrass adjacent music, but uh, <laughs> just keep pounding it in there. Yeah, I got a new, I got a new name for this. Podcast. Oh, this is yeah. <laughs> and for this to... music, we've had new new acoustic music, whatever Americana. Yeah, no bluegrass adjacent. Bluegrass adjacent music. Yeah. I I feel like this was this was progressive. Like it felt kind of out there. It was pretty even out... compared to what was being called progressive at the time. Yeah, yeah. There's some you know, there's a little bit of piano on there. There's a tune that has whole tones in it, which is out there because I was I'd gotten into whole tones and then having Andy Stabman play sax and play his crazy mandolin styles. We were just going for it and, and uh, you know, not worrying about what people would think and Rounder Records put it out. Uh, you know, Pete Wernick said I'd written some tunes and uh, he talked to Rounder Records, and he said, Tony should do an album. They said, okay. 
they never said, don't do this, don't do that, just whatever I did. I spent their money, sent them the the tapes, and they put it out, which thank thank you, Rounder Records, for doing that. Did you have any idea it would be such an influential recording? No, I mean, and I don't, to this day, I don't, I mean, I talked to people that say, oh, I heard that, and I was like, whoa, what's this? Yeah. Daryl Anger talks about that. So here and there, people talk about it. But no, it was just, we were just doing what we did and put it on an album, and, you know, I'd written a bunch of tunes. And Alison Brown told me that it was like, she, she I asked her why she, because I was always under the impression with Alison that she wanted to be a banjo player, but her parents wouldn't let her. Hmm. And so she had to go to Harvard. <laughs> and oh, I know, poor thing. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But what she said to me, she said, no, I, I didn't really want to be a banjo player because I, there was no model. She said, you know, like, who were solo instrumental banjo players besides Tony Trishka? Mm-hmm. Like, if that was, that was a, like, sure, Hickman, like, would put out a record. And right. my, maybe my favorite banjo player, by the way, John Hickman. Oh, wonderful banjo yeah. player, yeah. Um, Hickman put out a solo record. And, you know, there'd be the odd solo record from members of bands. Right. But it felt like you were kind of breaking new ground here as a solo instrumentalist on the banjo. Mm-hmm. You know, even to this day, I haven't thought about it that way. But I guess you're right. I mean, Billy Keith hadn't put... I don't think Billy put out his albums yet. I don't, I don't something think Something old, put, something new. I think that was 75 or something like that. And this was yeah. 73. I mean, Bill should have done it years before that. He had all this amazing stuff going on in the mid-60s that would have blown everyone away, but he just never did. Yeah. So, and Were you cool? Were you, were you wanting to be a professional musician? Was that the only thing? Was, was there another thing kind of? No, I was a fine arts major in school. So what am I going to do, be a... Uh, uh, you know, a curator at a museum. Yeah, I, I mean, I like art. Yeah. It, it, it was never, I never planned on doing anything but play the banjo. And I didn't even plan on that. I was just doing it. People say, did you make a decision? No, no. I just was always, I was playing since I was 14. I was earning money playing the banjo since I was 14. And then I earned it while I was in college. And then I got out of college and I just kept playing music. And your and your folks were cool? Yeah. They, they bought me banjos when I was young and supported me and yeah, they were fine with it. There was never any, why don't you get a real job? You know, that that's, never... That's rare, Tony. That's nice. I was I was very lucky. It was just, everything was just very, really smooth. I just sort of did it. And um, I never planned it. I was I didn't have a business model. I just did it. And then things just fell in my lap. Um, in 72, I guess it was, a friend of mine in Syracuse had said, oh, you should meet this guy, Pete Warnick, in, in, in Ithaca. Oh, Okay, and it hadn't happened yet. And then Dave Bromberg came to Syracuse to play a show. And Pete was uh, friends with Bromberg from, C- uh, from New York. So he came up, Pete came up, and we worked up a double banjo break to play with Bromberg. And then I met Pete. He had a band. He knew the Rounders who were in Ithaca. And suddenly I'm, uh, the door opens for Rounder Records for me. And then uh, Pete Wernick wrote, besides the Scruggs book, there were no other banjo books really out there. And then Pete wrote one for Oak Publications, and they wanted him to write a second one. And he he was burned out on the first one. He said, why don't you have Tony Trishka write a book? So he, that fell in my lap also, which was the other side of my career is the instructional side. Well, there's, there's, the, there's this whole, like, I'm happy you said there's no business model because not just bluegrass-adjacent music, but sort of like performance-adjacent work it's been following your life in the banjo more than anyone I've ever known, you know, composing themes for public radio, you know, Broadway plays, off Broadway plays, musicals. I mean, these were, there was no plan here. This was just kind of. No, it just, it fell into my lap. You know, I've been very fortunate. Just my life is, it's been amazing. I mean, when I look back at the people I've met, the situations I've been in, just 
synchronicity and serendipity. And uh, I've been very fortunate. I'm, uh, I think it's, Octo- it's October or November. I think it's October. Uh, we saw Joyce Carol Oates uh, do a thing in New York City um, where someone wrote a song based on one of her short stories. So she read the short story, then he played the song. And then the guy called me, got in touch with me, I don't know, a month ago and said, would you like to do this? Here's a Joyce Carol Oates short story. Would you like to write a song? Sure. So I haven't done it yet, but when I get home from this trip, I'm going to write some song based on the short story. And and I've met Joyce Carol Oates before because um, I'm friendly with Steve Martin and he has all these amazing people at his parties. So I got to know her and we did some lonesome tune. Steve and I would play a tune or tune for the folks at the party. And I played sort of this lonesome song and, and afterwards Joyce came up to me and said, oh, I really like that lonesome sound. I wrote a I wrote a short story based on the life of uh, Doc Boggs called High Lonesome. What, Joyce Carol Oates knows about Doc Boggs? What? Mm-hmm. So uh, yeah, these crazy things kind of kind of keep coming my way. Were you working towards a goal? Because it also just feels like you were you were taking on opportunities that allowed you to do what you love, which is play the banjo, as opposed to, I want to be the biggest banjo player in the world, or I want to be in the biggest bluegrass band in the world. Or, you know, like, I feel like it was, a lot of what I'm hearing is based on just a love of the actual playing of the instrument. That's kind of what it is. Yeah, I never, I really never had a goal. Um, I mean, three months ago or four months ago, I was talking to my friend Carla, who set this interview up, and we were just talking. I said, you know, I've got a bucket list. I've never played at Carnegie Hall. I'd like to do that someday. Not, I'm not going to draw enough people to fill Carnegie Hall, but just, you know, to play there. Yeah. And I'd like to be on the Grand Ole Opry. So, oh, okay, I'll make a phone call. And now I'm going to do the Opry tomorrow night. I know. I can't wait to talk. I'm so excited to hear that. Yeah, me too, obviously. The Grand Ole Opry. Not the Grand Ole Opry. By the way, 93. <laughs> 650 WSM Clear Channel. Have you thought about what you're going to play yet? Yeah, yeah. I'm going to do... Uh, I was going to do a vocal, but then it was suggested to me, why don't you do an instrumental, since that's your banjo player. So I'm going to do a song called West Point of the Eno, and then I wrote a song with vocals uh, inspired by um, DeFord Bailey, the first African-American on the Grand Ole Opry, uh, an amazing harmonica player. I heard him play what he called Fox Chase, which is a genre-specific thing. I mean, in old-time music and in black blues, you know, there are Fox Chases, so I wrote my own Fox Chase with lyrics. Uh, and we're going to do that tomorrow night. I think I know that tune. So that's on one of your records, right? Yeah, it's on, on my territory. Mom said, Tom, but I'll get you home. If I've got the chicken tissues, you're born. Grab the cop of his bell town. Head that new where the hill went down. Yeah, I know that record. Michael Dave sings that. It, it seems to always go over really well with audiences, I figured. It's, it's just it's a one chord, pretty much one chord, up tempo kind of tune, and fiddle based, and. Gets people excited, so I figured that'll be good to do. Um, I want to. I want to ask you. You mentioned the uh, instructional part of your life. Obviously, we're in Bela's Bela Flex house right now, um, and there's this kind of famous story about Bela coming to you as a student. But all I ever know about it is that Bela came to you as a student, <laughs> and you said, "Oh, this kid's really good." Well, you know, this kid's guy. I can't really. I don't have a whole lot to teach him. But can you can you paint me a picture of like what do you remember about him showing up at your door that day? I don't remember specifically, he was 16 at the time, and he was living on the Upper West Side of Manhattan. I was in the Bronx, and he'd been taking, he took lessons from Eric Darling from the Weavers, who came after Pete Seeger, and then uh, took lessons from a guy named Mark Horowitz, who was a wonderful banjo player in uh, in New York City. And my in my Bluegrass Light album had come out, and Bela wanted to learn those tunes, so he was having Mark learn these tunes for him. Right. And Mark had a struggle to figure out these weird, crazy tunes that I'd written. I read. I felt sorry for Mark. And Mark finally said, "Just take lessons from Tony. He lives in the Bronx. You know, I hate 
having to learn these crazy songs. So anyway, <laughs> so he came to me, and uh, Mark had taught him some fiddle tunes, and he could play some bluegrass and you know some scrug style. Uh, but he wanted to get into the more progressive things, so I probably showed him one or two of my tunes, and then uh, he would record me playing a traditional tune like Little Maggie, and I, I would jam out for two minutes or three minutes, and then he would come back the next week having played, uh, worked up every note, transcribed every note, and played it perfectly back at me, something I just improvised. And and I wasn't showing him Scruggs style. I was very irresponsible as a teacher at that point. I hadn't been <laughs> teaching that long. So, well, you got to listen to Earl Scruggs, you know, and yeah. he wanted to learn all this crazy stuff, so... Uh, we don't. We never. We never remember exactly how long it was. I sort of remember we took kind of regular lessons for a few months. It, it wasn't that long before. Hey, I, I can't show you anything more. You know, you're, you've got it. Was it Was it meaningful to you to have? I mean, because from what I can tell, you were kind of this freak on the banjo. <laughs> yeah, hungry freaks, daddy. Yeah, <laughs> you were kind of this freak on the banjo, man. Like I remember listening to. Maybe it was Bluegrass Light. No, I think it was. I think it was a country cooking record. One of the ones with Statman on it. Yeah. And and I remember hearing, oh, this sounds like a pretty straight bluegrass tune. And then Andy coming in and playing like a completely different scale. Oh yeah, that's Andy. Yeah, and it's totally different. He called it the Knucklehead Smith tuning. There was some puppet in the fifties named Knucklehead Smith, but he <laughs> and he would just take he'd take one note and randomly tune it to some other. And I would take a, a pairing of strings and rather than have them in unison, he would. Change into and Monroe would do that too, but in a more normal way. Yeah, Andy would just put in some wacky double stop tuning, and it's like what? Yeah, because I mean, you guys were new music. You guys were experimental music in some ways. Within, yeah, well, within, the, within bluegrass, you know. For that to, yeah, so yeah. you were these freaks. Okay, uh, we've established <laughs> we were freaks of the adjacent music, the adjacent to bluegrass music. Was it meaningful to have this kid come in, sixteen years old, and be into you, man? Like. That your work that I'm sure maybe felt like you were doing it in a certain amount of isolation, mm-hmm. there was someone who dug it and wanted to know how to do it. I don't specifically remember that. It, was, it was, certainly wasn't an ego thing. I mean, it was. Um, I mean, we all have egos, as as, as Sonny Osborne said. Oh, yeah, you talk, he told me this one. Said, you know, you, you say you play your music to share your music with people. No, it's your ego, you know. But anyway, um, but yeah, I'm sure it was at the time. It probably was felt nice to have. Oh, he wants to learn this crazy tune or learn this technique or whatever it was. Yeah, it wasn't just like, I want to play the banjo like Earl Scruggs. Mm. He very specifically wanted to work on some of my stuff. And like I said, I should have shown him some Scruggs style too, but he got that later on. So, What's your, what's your earliest memory of meeting Earl? Somewhere in the 80s at some festival, just kind of... So late. Yeah. I saw him in, I saw him in 63. He came to Cornell University and did a show with Flat and Scruggs. And then at 68, my parents took a, me and my sister to uh, Montreal, your very own country, to, um, <laughs> to go to 67 or 68. When was the World's Fair up there? 67. 67. We went to the World's Fair there. And it turned out that Flatten Scruggs were playing a concert, not part of the World's Fair. It just randomly turned out they were playing that one of the nights we were there. We got to see Flatten Scruggs. So we did. We went and saw Flatten Scruggs. So, so I'd seen them a couple of times, but I hadn't actually met uh, Earl till somewhere in the 80s. Um, and I just kind of remember kind of in passing meeting him for a moment and shaking his hand and, and that and uh, but it became a bit of a friendship you guys knew each other yeah as, as time went on um banjo newsletter asked me to interview him for the, the columbia was putting out a best of double album set and so they asked me to do it and said sure so i had a phoner with him and uh, and louise and then uh, i asked him to be on my double banjo album double banjo bluegrass spectacular 
for around her, and and uh, I had been talking to Louise because she was you know the person you would talk to, and uh, and she said you know she agreed, and we did it right here. They came in that door right over there, and uh, and on one level it's Earl, you know he's a very laid back kind of slightly shy maybe, but you know, nice guy. Wait, it's Earl Scruggs. And I was sitting knee to, right over there. I was sitting knee to knee with him working on Farewell Blues, which was the tune we decided to do. Again, it's like you're sort of pinching yourself like, wait, this is Earl Scruggs on my album. And then when I was 14 or someone said, someday Earl Scruggs will play on your album. But uh, over the years, uh, I would spend time time with him. Bale and I, I worked on this um, documentary called Give Me the Banjo, yeah. which was on PBS. And uh, Bale and I uh, went to Earl's house here in Nashville and, and interviewed him. And then afterwards, Gary, uh, Earl's son, said, well, you know, Dad's in the, in the, um, in the study. Why don't you go and, and hang with him and uh, just spend some time with him? Because he was just sitting there by himself. So Bale and I went there. And then Bale had to leave to do something. And then I was just me and Earl just kind of chewing the fat. Telling, you know, Earl would tell great stories about how he played with Ravi Shankar and you know, et cetera, et cetera, which is another story. And then they well, played. Earl the, played with Ravi Shankar. Oh yeah, everyone knows that. <laughs> no. <laughs> Where did Earl play with Ravi Shankar? So Earl did uh, Earl Scruggs and Friends, this movie with Bob Dylan and yeah, Joan Baez. I think I've seen Doc some Watson. Of that. Yeah, yeah. So uh, did, Monroe's in it briefly, right? I think he does. Uh, maybe I, I, I don't know that I've seen the whole thing actually, but yeah, he, he could be. It's on it's YouTube possible. and. Uh, Dylan's in it, right? Yeah, yeah Dylan's yeah, in yeah, it. Yeah, does right. Nashville Skyline Rag, and and so uh, this was another time when I went to Earl's house and he was just telling stories and he said, yeah, they, they were trying to get a camera crew because uh, Ravi Shankar was in town with Alan Raka, his his uh, tabla player, and they couldn't find a camera crew, but Ravi came over and jammed with Earl, and then afterwards Earl said that all Ravi Shankar wanted was Kentucky Fried Chicken, so they ordered. Ordered in some tubs of <laughs> slaw and mashed potatoes and wings or something. <laughs> to be a fly on the wall and hear those guys jam would have been amazing. Can we talk a little bit about that Keith record that you and Balin and um, Bill did together? A really formative record for me. I learned a lot off of it. Mm-hmm. It was, it was, but in, in retrospect, it feels like something kind of um, interesting for you. And maybe, again, my job as a, as a public radio host is to overthink things for the artist. <laughs> In that moment, it was. I'm now seeing it as you with a mentor and a mentee, mm-hmm. all, all on one record together. Right. It was three generations. It wasn't like we were working together. There's one song on there that we did. I think at Bela's parents, uh, his mother's apartment in New York, as I remember it. We did. Uh, I think it's Salt Creek. I want to say. Maybe it was Bill Cheatham. But anyway, there's one tune with all three of us. Three, it, three harmonies on it, right? Right, triple yeah. banjos. Yeah, I think that is all correct. Not for the faint of heart. Yeah. <laughs> And then we each did five or six songs, whatever it was, separately, and then just sent them in. So it wasn't like we were in the studio all the time and we're thinking about, yeah, it's three generations. But it was, and I was aware of that. You know, I was aware of that. And I thought it was pretty cool to, to have it be that. But, um, yeah, I mean, there's definitely a linear thing there. I mean, 
I learned so much from Bill Keith, and I was just at Bela's banjo camp and uh, teaching some Bill Keith things. And oh yeah, I owe Bill Keith for that lick and yeah. for that technique and for this and this theoretical knowledge. Yeah. But because you were kind of the first to me, and I don't like use the word first because whenever I say the first, someone will go, "Well, there was actually." But right. to me, you're the first person to synthesize and kind of be style agnostic. You know, like I feel like Bill Keith was. A melodic banjo player. Don Reno was a single string banjo player. Earl Scruggs played Scruggs style banjo. Right. You were the first banjo player that I knew of, or at least I cared about, that saw that you were able to incorporate all three. Yeah, uh, Bobby Thompson did also. He played. He played Reno style. He did in '64. I and mean, there's this tape of Bill Keith meeting Bobby Thompson for the first time, which I, apparently I just. It's like this tape that, that I got years ago from. I can say it now, yeah. from Bob Yellen from the Greenbrier Boys. He said, "But don't tell anyone where you got this." Yeah. And, uh, I think some of it's on YouTube now. I just heard that it's on YouTube. So, yeah. oh well. <laughs> I've been re- hiding it for years. There goes Wait, my it's on YouTube. Plan. <laughs> exactly. I had someone lined up a hundred thousand dollars for that Canadian dollars, no less. Uh, no, um, but I, w- w- that, yeah, but there's there's a few songs on there. He does like uh, uh, I'm spacing the name of it suddenly. But anyway, there are certain places where in one song he'll do single string as in Reno, who actually that came originally from Eddie Adcock before Reno, but that's another story. But single string, melodic, and Scruggs, all in one solo. Uh, yeah, so he, he was doing it also. But for, but for me, it's you who, you were just trying to get the music out that was in your head. It didn't right. Really, it didn't really matter to be a melodic player. It didn't really matter whether you were a Reno-style player, whether you were a Scruggs Right, player. it's just you, you take the materials at hand, and, and that's what Bela does also so beautifully. And they... He has synthesized them so beautifully. And I'll trans I haven't recently, but I would transcribe some of his solos. And is that single string or is that melodic? You know, it's so, he's so smooth and has it so perfectly played. It's like it's almost impossible to say. But anyway, yeah. The the reason I, w- I want to bring this up is because I was I was talking to a couple of my friends and I told them I was talking to you, and I said, "Do you know anything you want to know from from Tony?" And they said something interesting. They said that Tony Trishka is fearless in his music he's not brave in his music because brave implies that there is a fear and you overcome it uh-huh. but it feels like from the very beginning you've been fearless in what you want to do mm-hmm. from putting middle eastern licks into <laughs> a banjo tune in front of ralph stanley right now that we're here and who knows when we'll get to do this again where do you think that fearlessness comes from that's uh, that's a really good question I, I, re- I don't have an answer. That's a good, really good question. I've never been asked that before. I don't know. Uh, I'm glad it's there because it has opened up so many doors. Like, oh, he does this. Uh, I, I, to, to answer your question, I, I really don't know. Uh, I just, again, it might be the 60s, even though in 65, all that stuff wasn't happening really yet. Yeah. I just, I just found sounds that I liked. I wasn't thinking that I was fearless. So I like this. You idiot! Ralph Stanley's one of the judges. Don't play that, you know. Uh, but uh, again, just all these things open up. And like right now, I'm writing music for uh, to putting some Emily Dickinson poems to music. Not that that's not been done before; it has. Mm-hmm. But it's just something I I had a chance. I mean, a case in point, I got a chance to do a podcast in her bedroom because mm-hmm. uh, they're trying to bring creative creative people into her bedroom. So there's creativity going on in her where she wrote all of her poems. That's, I don't know how that happened, just because people know that I do different things, yeah. I guess. So that led to that. And now I'm writing 
doing this, and I'm going to record with Abby on uh, Abigail Washburn in a couple of days with one of those that I put to music. So it's just this other avenue to go down. It's uh, I, it's just there's so much out there in the world to explore, and I you know I love the history of the banjo. I had a show called World Turning with a narrator, and I would play you know African music straight through the progressive stuff and it's just it's a big world yeah lots to explore what was the record what was the song on that record I think it was something about going to the cider oh the cider yeah with the violent femmes down in the cider house that got weird man at the end it was so cool <laughs> It went out. It went out a little bit. Yeah, well, Brian Ritchie of the Femmes uh, played didgeridoo, and so let's get the didgeridoo in there. And it comes in after the song is over. Yeah, as the song is over, you know, all that stuff, yeah. As someone who is so responsible, and I get to say this to you, as someone who is so responsible for the progression of the music and the and the kind of weirdness of the music <laughs> now and the and the adjacentness of, of bluegrass adjacent music. <laughs> Thank you. How are you feeling about the future of the of the music of bluegrass music of bluegrass adjacent music? How are you feeling about its health going forward? Oh, it's really healthy. Again, I was just at Bayless Camp, Blue Ridge Banjo Camp last week, and there are these young guys who are just burning it up playing. Uh, you know, like jazz, straight ahead jazz, bebop on the banjo, amongst other things, and can sort of go anywhere. They've sort of taken, you know, what Bale has done, what Noam Pekelny's done, and they're big fans of their music, and they're, it's just, you know, it's the progression. And they're these kids that are, you know, 16, 17, 20 years old that are doing stuff that we couldn't even conceive of before, like Bela, let's say. You know, playing Charlie Parker licks fluidly, you know, without even thinking about it. So it's it's very healthy, I think. And that's just, I know, I mean, there are so many great um, fiddle players out there, too. I teach at the Berkeley College of Music a little bit in the fall and spring. And uh, I get to see all these young players that are coming through. And especially fiddle players are just, it's outrageous what they're doing. So, yeah, there's lots of amazing stuff. The music is secure. The the future is secure. I I hope you know, and you don't have to agree with me, but I hope you know you have a big, you had a big hand in all this stuff. Well, you know, people keep saying that to me, so I guess it's true. I I don't see it that way. I just did what I did. But people say I heard bluegrass light, and it sent me off in this direction, whatever. So I mean, it's it's a great feeling if that's if that's true. So thanks for making the time, Tony. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed it. I enjoyed it as well. Thanks, man. All right, there you have it, Tony Trishka. Uh, what a joy it was to talk to him a little bit about what has influenced him, um, a little bit about why he makes the music that he made, and just to hear some of those stories. What a, what a joy. Uh, thanks a lot to Tony. Thanks a lot to Bela Fleck for offering up his basement for an hour so I could talk to Tony. Uh, it, was, it was a really cool afternoon. I recorded Tony, and then I spoke to Bela right afterwards. And uh, there's a photo I'll, I'll put on our, on our... I know I said I wouldn't do this, but I'll do it anyway. There's a photo I'll put on our Instagram of uh, the three of us hanging out. And uh, yeah, little 15-year-old banjo nerd Tom. Pretty, pretty happy. Uh, two weeks from now is our season finale uh, here on Toy Heart. Uh, we'll be closing off this season uh, with Jerry Douglas, legendary roots musician, you know, bluegrass musician for sure, but like his influence on the on the dobro, on the resophonic guitar has uh, really reached all around the world. And um, 
you know, one of the finest musicians in sort of uh, American history, I think. So uh, joy to talk to him. A real talker, too. It's going to be a bit of a, a longer episode than maybe you're used to. So I'm, I'm excited to hear all the stories from Jerry Douglas. So that's coming up. Toy Heart is produced by Stephanie Coleman and me, Tom Power. Our executive producer is Amy Reitenauer-Jacobs, with help, as always, from the entire BGS team, including producer Chris Jacobs, associate editor Justin Hiltner, managing editor Craig Shelburne, and all the amazing writers and contributors that make BGS the best source for roots, culture, redefined. Discover more at thebluegrasssituation.com. The show was mixed by Mike Laval and Stephanie Coleman. Transcription done by Rob McLaren. Our theme song, Toy Heart by Bill Monroe and his Bluegrass Boys, performed by Kristen Andreasen and Chris Critter Eldridge. Kristen, one of my favorite songwriters. Check out her music. Uh, Critter, you might know from the Punch Brothers where he plays guitar. He's giving guitar lessons online during the pandemic. It is blowing my mind that you can learn from him right now. So if you are a guitar player, do not not do this. You can find him on Instagram at Critter Eldridge. If you like this show, speaking of Instagram, you can find us at Toy Heart Podcast. And if you want to like or rate or subscribe to the podcast, that helps us out in a real way. We'll see you in two weeks for my conversation with Jerry Douglas. Thanks for tuning in. Later on.